Hello, everybody. I'm Sean Reynolds from Sportsnet, joined by Ken Weed from Sportsnet. Together we are Kenny and Rennie, and this is the Kenny and Rennie weekly long-form show where we love to dig into the personalities that uh, make up our, our great Canadian and sometimes American sports scene, and we got a great one. It's an all-Manitoba show here today, as we've got myself from from Lactabon in Manitoba, Ken Weeb from Altona, and uh, Leah Hextall, who I, I think is a Brandon girl. I'm pretty sure. I know that the family's the Western uh, Western uh, Manitoba family. But uh, you know what, Ken? Usually we like to take the first five minutes, or we take the first five minutes of this show to kind of set things up because our guests are usually a little slow at getting into the room. But not Leah. She uh, is on the ball, so she's here. Let's get her right into the show. It's great to have you. Not your first time with Kenny and Rennie. You joined us after uh, one on one of our post-game shows, and that was awesome to do. I know that our audience definitely appreciated that, Leah. Um, I wanted to get started. Uh, your family fascinates me. I think they are the first family of hockey when it comes yeah. to Manitoba. And I'm very interested in what it's like growing up in a hockey family that clearly probably thinks a little bit more about the game than your average family, <laughs> even with the crazy hockey families we have here. What's it like growing up in a family like yours? Well, first of all, hi, guys. How are you? So nice We're to see great. you. So yeah, nice great. to see you. Um, well, first of all, you, you're pretty close, Sean. I, I do consider myself a Brandonite because yeah. I moved there when I was 11, and I lived there for all my, what I consider my really formative years, and, and that's where my folks and my sister are and my greatest friends, so that's home. Uh, originally born in Portage La Prairie, though. So I, I do Ooh. have great Portage La Prairie, Poplar Point roots. So all in that vicinity right there. So anyways, and, and that's where the hockey family really started, right, was Poplar Point. It's like this map dot. Uh, it's so small, but so many good players have, you know, come out of it. And that's where, you know, with my grandfather, he uh, is Brian Hextall. So he would have played for the Rangers back in the 40s. And he's a Hall of Famer with the New York Rangers, and he scored the game-winning goal in overtime to clinch the mm -hmm. 1940s Cup against Toronto and led the league in scoring for multiple years. One of the first players to play is off-wing. So, you know, there's a bit of credit to that. But but was also, because what's really interesting, and, and Sean, I should share this with you sometimes, is um, my, my nan, my grandma, his wife, Gertrude, when he was playing, she cut out all the articles oh. um, from the 19, and the 1940s Stanley Cup run. And I've been going through, and my mom went through these painstaking ways to scan all of it and digitize for it for our family so we can all share in it because my Uncle Brian uh, Jr., who's Ron's dad, uh, has the books, um, you know, as he was gifted them through through just, you know, as people pass away. So we have these on digital. So I have been reading lately the articles and just seeing some of the language that they used back then. Like they didn't say lineup tonight. They said the players tonight. So yeah. I know people don't really get me here on ESPN. But when I do lineup changes, I said the players tonight will not include, you know, and I've started to try and they, you know, and in the rule book, it says this too. But what I noticed in the articles is they call it the penalty bench, not the box, the penalty bench. And in the rule book for the NHL, if you read it, it's still the penalty bench. So uh. I have that language as well. So I've been reading these articles, but it's incredible because what I found out about my grandpa, my pops, is that he was one of the original Ironmen. He was the first guy who played, like, I think it was, you know, obviously they didn't play as many games back then, and I can't think of the number, but they used the word Iron Man to describe him uh, back in the 19, late 30s and 40s because he didn't miss a game for, like, I think five or six seasons, something along that line. So anyways, so that's really who started it all. But the reason they ended up in Poplar Point was because my pops was in Grenfell, Saskatchewan. That's where he was born. 
And, uh, you know, there was a passing away of his dad and his mother, Emma Hextall. Um, you know, she she was brothers. She was originally a Bend. And the Bens themselves have great hockey history, or hockey history and, and baseball history. All of Bend, and which would have been little at, in her, you know, maiden name, played uh, for the Rockford Peaches back in the day, and is in the Manitoba Sport Hall of Fame. So there's all these connections. But that's what got them to Manitoba was the passing of uh, my pops's dad and brought them to Papa Point. The Bens really took care of them, and a big reason why because you know some of the Bens were playing, you know, in, you know, in the NHL, and that brought attention to my grandfather, and that started it. And and then from there, you know. Five kids, him and my nan had. So my uncle Brian, who's the eldest of five, who's Ron's dad, played. Next below him is my uncle Denny. My uncle Denny played. Um, you know, started at UND in college hockey. Was the first member of University of North Dakota to be drafted into the NHL. Um, so you know, he played. And then my uncle Rick. They all the brothers say he was the best player out of all of them. But uh, my uncle Rick really enjoyed. Um, you know, the other side of professional sports when you're a hockey player, uh, you know, partaking in, um, you know, the fun and uh, the lovely ladies that sometimes go around. And so he was a little distracted from the game. Uh, so was priority, but they all say he was the best one out of all of them, but he never made it pro, I mean, in the way of the NHL. And then my dad uh, won a Centennial Cup with the Portage Terriers, was one of their elite goal scorers in junior. Um, you know, Memorial Cup, like, you know, we know how big those junior championships are. And, and it was huge for Manitoba at that time when they won the centennial. And um, he went on and played in St. Louis at a, an NHL um, development camp, didn't make the team. And back then, you know, there was no Europe option or AHL didn't really develop players the way it does now. So, you know, he comes home to my pops and he's like, well, you didn't make it. So you're done. So go, yeah. we'll go find a job. Right. So, <laughs> but I still think like my dad was only 5'10 and fairly slight. But he was such a goal scorer, and obviously he fought a lot too, and 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 stuff like that. But I think in today's day in NHL, because he was a beautiful skater and he could put the puck in the net, I think uh, he was just in the wrong generation. But that's really sorry. That's such a long answer. But that's that's the fa family dynamic. And then you know, on the side of it is um, you know my nan, who was married to my pops, uh, Gertrude Lyon, and her brother played for the Boston Bruins. So it really came at you wow. know my family at both sides uh, when it came to the NHL. So so that's where it all stems. But one of the biggest things that people should know is that I know the Hextall name is the one that's associated with kind of this, you know, maybe a little bit of we're aggressive, we're competitive people, you know, like we, we are as Hextalls. Um, but that's not really from the Hextall side. That's the lion in us. That's my nan's mm -hmm. side. She was the fiery one. My pops was a very quiet man. He didn't say a lot until he had to. He was 5'10 and just built. But, I mean, he was quiet. It's my nan that gave us the fire. So, really, it's the lion side, but just because, you know, the Hextall. So, a little little tidbit for everyone right there that uh, the Hextall name gets credit for something that the lion should. The fire, the fire is obviously part of the charm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's one thing to grow up around the game, but what is it about the sport that kind of attracted you to it and, and made it something that you wanted to pursue as a career option? Yeah, I mean, it's it's so weird, guys, because people always, I think, associated, especially when I got into broadcast and was covering hockey, that, well, of course, she knows the game because she's a hex doll. Um, I didn't play. Like, I, I've never played. I'm not even a great skater. I figure skated, and I got my first pair of hockey skates from Bauer a couple of years ago and you know I tried to toe pick when I was skating and I went right over on myself so you know I, I just uh you know I, I didn't play the game besides shimmy outside on the outdoor rink you know and so but for some reason I've just always loved the ice 
I, I don't even know how to describe it to people. I love the ice. And when my dad played, you know, senior men's hockey, when I was a little kid, I would go with him because I'd want to be just in the dressing room and I would just want to be around the rink. And I don't know why. And I, I believe that that is something in my genetics that just produces love. But with that, I have sat around the kitchen table at Poplar Point and listened to stories over and over and over again. And I, I wish I would have had an iPhone back in the day to record all of them um, because that's how I grew up, just listening to all these hockey tales. And I've always known that being a Hextel, like Ron started playing when I was eight and obviously had a very strong rookie season going to the cup final against Gretzky's Oilers in 87. I still think that's one of the best Stanley Cup series uh, out there to this date and, and doing what he's done. So it was always like, as soon as you hear Hextel, especially in Manitoba, people ask, oh, are you related? So I think that came into me that, you know, what I'm most proud about is, um, you know, when I started coming to Brandon Weekings and my first job in Brandon, um, the very first game I did, I got a stat sheet watching the game. As a casual fan, I watched when Ron would play that, you know, when you get into the Stanley Cup final or playoffs, that's really when I started to pay attention. But I was a casual fan. And then suddenly I'm covering it and I couldn't even read a stat sheet. I didn't understand offside. I didn't know why the power play set up the way it did. Mm. And I went home my very first game and I said to my dad, dad, what's offside? And he said, sit down. And we went to the kitchen table and on a pad of paper, he drew the rank and he put the lines and he took me through offside and icing. And I, he was my Oracle for years about like, you know, dad, why are they doing this? And, and that's really, and then obviously from, you know, my father to, as you grow in sport and you work with different people, you learn so much from your analysts that you work with in studio, you just take in, you guys know from being around people who see the game in such a different way than we can or ever will because of their, you know, elite status in it. And I've just really, you know, been a student of the game for goodness now, almost 18 years. And so that's why being able to call it now um, even though, you know, I don't think anybody knows that rule book front to back, but just to be able to call it now, it's been a lot of work, but I, I just think there was something in me, even though I didn't play it, I just, I just love the game and so many Canadians do. So that doesn't make me special, but I, I just think it's the fact that it feels like family because since the day I can remember, I've been a Hextall and that's what we are associated with. I want to stick with that family theme because a couple of years ago I was with my wife and kids. We were in Riding Mountain and I saw your cousin Ron, you know, at the local pizza place there. And I just thought, okay, like here's this guy. He's just, you know, been a power figure in the league since you were talking about back in his rookie season. And he still remains there as the general manager of the Pittsburgh Penguins, but he keeps coming back to Manitoba. You yourself, you know, went and you spent time in Boston, south of the border. You travel a lot for your job. It's There seems to be something in your family. You talked about going and spending time at Poplar Point with the rest of the family. You had uncles that played in the NHL, came back. Your grandfather came back. How would you explain uh, the roots that exist between the Hextalls and the rest of your family uh, in Manitoba and that, you know, that your family didn't end up in New York after your grandfather had such an illustrious career. What keeps bringing the Hextalls back to Manitoba? Well, Sean, that's that's a that's a great question because you're absolutely right. There's no reason why they had to stay in Poplar Point when my grandfather's playing in New York City. I mean, he had Humphrey Bogart waiting for him outside of a game one day. Okay, wow. like that's what we're talking about. We have a picture of him in Bogey, and I'm just like, are you kidding me? So, why did they stay there? Well, they stayed there because Hextall's Lumberyard was next door to their house, and Hextall's Hunting Lodge was just down the road in St. Ambrose and they are fueled as hunters. That is their prime time besides hockey passion. 
Mm. And they have the land to do it here. They have the ability to do it here. Um, you know, that hunting lodge, like my dad has original Fisher and Price toys because Fisher and Price used to come to our hunting lodge. Tom Selleck used to come to our hunting lodge. It was known. All these players came to our hunting lodge to hunt because they all love to hunt. So I think just their other passions kept them here. But I mean, really, it's interesting you say that because, yes, I have lived in Boston. I've lived in Toronto and I love it. I, I consider myself a city girl. Like I love cities. I really do. But there is something about this like when i came home from living in boston you remember how much you know just driving down the highway from winnipeg to brandon and just being able to see as far as you can as people make fun of us you could lose your dog and watch him run away for seven <laughs> days before you have to go after him but you know i just think manitoba is just such a special place and it's it's the people really honestly i mean i think we are manitobans and i'm a very proud manitoban like i get upset you know, when people get it wrong, uh, you know, and I'm, I, I'm sure you guys find this too, like we're called Winterpeg and, you know, and I'm like, no, like it takes a special person to live here. And I, I just think, you know, there's no better summers in the world than our summer. Even when I lived in Toronto, when I had my summers off, I would come home for at least a full month and see everybody. I'd watch Kenny do two aces at the golf course, you know, that's what I did in the summer. So, you know, being home and it's just, you know, it's hard to, it's home. It's just home. And I think that, you know, I love the blue collar mentality and the prairie province that is built on egg, which has a special kind of breed of people that will help you no matter what. And I know you guys get it because of where you're from, but you almost have to live here to understand it. I mean, you know, even when I got laid off from hockey night, I came back here and I worked in politics for the premier, no matter what your politics are. My favorite part of that job was when we would go up north to Churchill and give money or we'd provide money to build the new plant in Simplot, which I knew was going to create hundreds of jobs for Manitobans and keep industry here. And I just think that there's so much that we can do that our province hasn't even tapped into yet. So, I mean, I just look at Manitoba and, uh, you know, there's something about the people from here. And I think it gives us grit. And I fully believe that's why I've been able to do what I've done in my life when I've been counted out is because how I have been supported since day one, not just in my career, but just growing up by prairie people in this province. Yeah, there's something about the serenity of, uh, of Clear Lake in the summertime, right? Uh, getting a, maybe a little round of golf and walking around town. Uh, Lee, obviously you've had an you know, interesting career for sure. Uh, just help, first and foremost, how'd you get in, interested in journalism itself and maybe tell the folks a little bit about your early years on the career path? Yeah, those early years now, Kenny, like I look back at them and I love them so much. I, I, I almost wish for those days, even though, you know, it was so different back then. Um, I went to, after I got out of high school, all my aptitude tests said that I should be a lawyer. I think because, you know, I was that kid who entered public speaking competitions. Like I, you know, I just, you know, I did, besides playing sports, I did a ton of plays and I loved to do public speaking. And I knew as soon as I got you know, if we had to do a speech in class or a presentation, I knew I was getting an A just because of my ability to talk and present. And obviously I'm a talker and I talk too much most of the time. Anybody who knows me knows that. Um, but, <laughs> but the fact is, is that, so I was gonna be a lawyer. I started going to university at BU and I hated every second of it. And I wasn't even taking anything to do with law. I just, I was taking things that didn't interest me. I didn't do great my first year university i think actually i was on academic probation and it wasn't <laughs> it was, you know yeah i was i was going to a couple clubs every once in a while on, <laughs> on thursdays tuesdays was yaks you know people from brandon will know what i'm talking about but i mean it, it wasn't like i was out partying i just didn't enjoy it so after and i was paying for my own school and so after like the first year i just said to my folks like 
this is just isn't for me. And I think I had a bit of growing up to do. So I moved to Winnipeg, lived with my sister who was going to U of M, just served, served at Applebee's, you know, worked at the bank in the day, you know. And what I realized there is that I, I wanted a job that I loved because my parents had always said, like, you know, do something you would do for free. And one of my favorite quotes is, without passion, true greatness cannot be achieved. And, and you know, and I, I had a lot of fun serving. We all do in that lifestyle. But, you know, obviously that's not what I want to do. So I really sat down and I was like, what do I love? I grew up playing sports. I loved every second of it. Some of my best friends still to this day are people that I did athletics with. And I loved it. I loved everything about it. The other side to me is that I've always been involved in plays and public speaking. And I love drama. So I just married the two together. And I came up with, you know, and when I was young, I used to always watch Barbara Walters. I, I loved Barbara Walters. I, I loved watching her 10 most fascinating people. And I loved 2020. And I, there was something about that. So I married the two together. I applied to Red River, but didn't accept me. Let's let's clear that up. Didn't get accepted. <laughs> and they know that because they've asked me to come speak to their kids. And I still don't because uh, I'm that girl. Uh, that's <laughs> right there. But, you know, um, you know, I didn't get accepted. So I went out to Vancouver to go to school found a school out there and it was the best thing for me because you know you're living in a new place and I, I was forced into uncomfortable situations and and I loved every minute of it and while I was there I was you know connecting with CKX when I would come home I'd go in there with my little tape my little VHS tape because that's what we had back then and I would show them my you know practicing you know at school and then it was two months before I was supposed to graduate. It was only a year program. And I got a call from CKX and they said, we have an opening. And I interviewed for it and I got it. And, you know, my parents said, do something you would do for free. I pretty much took them up on that because it, <laughs> if I wasn't able to live with my parents while I was living here in Brandon working. But what, a, what an amazing opportunity. A job right out of school, which is so hard to get. Uh, doing it all, wearing every hat, covering everything, a place to make my mistakes, a place to do it all wrong in a community that I knew. I knew it was important here to Brandon and the Westman area. And then also just that wanted to see this hometown girl do well, even though she probably wasn't very good on air yet. Mm -hmm. Made all my mistakes, came to Winnipeg. That's where I got to meet Kenny, the beauty that he is. And, and uh, he's got too many stories on me that I, you know, hope he never tells. Uh, but, you know, covered the Memorial Cup, got to go back to Brandon and cover the Memorial Cup. Kenny, you were there. One of my favorite experiences of all time covering that 2010 Memorial Cup, but just kept working and bouncing around and then got that big break with Nesson in Boston, which took a lot of work. And then from there, Hockey Night came calling uh, when Sportsnet got the rights. I mean, Sean, obviously you remember the rights deal. And unfortunately mm -hmm. for me, um, two years after that, got laid off and, um, you know, and, and couldn't get a job for a while and uh, turned into play-by-play -play and uh, just kind of kept pushing forward. And now I'm calling games on this little network called ESPN. So that's about it. <laughs> I, I was going to ask a different question, but I, where, you le where you ended that takes me to a place I wanted to ask you because you used the language earlier on in one of your answers where you just feel like you were counted out. Yeah. And hey, we all know the direction this industry is heading in. We all know that you know it's getting smaller. I'm in my computer, bigger. guys. Sorry, um, yeah, my battery's no about to run out. So don't worry about no. me. I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> like it's hard not to feel like when things don't go well at this stage in journalism. If you lose a job, it's hard not to feel like you're going to get counted out. I'm, I'm fascinated by the perseverance you've shown uh, and, and in getting back to where you are. And like you said, now you're calling games on ESPN. 
give me an idea of the mindset that you went through and kind of the recreation of yourself and your career uh, that you went through to kind of get back to the space that you're in. Starting in, I mean, I know that you call Steinbeck Pistons games. Uh, it, to, to me, it just seemed like I, I was watching from afar your path and I was fascinated the direction you took it in and the road that you've traveled to get where you are. Give me an idea of some of the, the doubts that you had to overcome, the belief in yourself you had to to have to get to where you are and a little bit about the road you traveled to get back to where you are. Sean, so when I got laid off in 2016, um, you know, I, I crashed to the floor. I, you know, when I got that phone call from Sportsnet, even though I was aware that it really could happen, I was very fortunate because I had the ability financially, you know, I still under contract, some of the business things that, you know, so I didn't have to worry about the financial aspect, which was very important. Um, you know, I had signed on with ESPN to do the World Cup of Hockey back in 2016 already to be the ringside reporter for them. And that's what started my relationship with ESPN was those 20 days and those, you know, those games. And and then after that, though, you know, I was up for every job like Vegas was coming into the league. I was up for that. I was up for a job at, you know, other networks. And I won't get all into it, but I kept getting passed over. And suddenly the next season was starting and I didn't have a job. I was, I had given up my condo in Toronto. I was living with my mom and Brandon because I assumed, you know, I don't know where I'm going at. My stuff was in storage. I figured something would pan out because I've been doing this for 15 years and I'd just been working on national television for the greatest and most iconic brand in hockey. And plus with my Nesson experience, I covered the NFL. I covered a World Series. I, you know, I had this resume that should stand behind you to be able to find something, but we don't live and work in that world in our industry. Um, it's really about who's in the chair that's making the decisions and where is the industry going? And at that time for me, I was 37 and the people that were getting, the industry was pulling back and cutting jobs. And also, you know, I'm an aging female. And I really realized that, you know, a lot of the jobs that I was up for, they were going younger and it didn't matter how much skill set I had. And, and I had to, you know, then I had to find a real job. And like I told everybody, I went into politics and worked for the government. But then when that happened and I stabilized here in Winnipeg, I had to sit down with myself because broadcasting was my passion. And I said, what if I never broadcast again, what will I regret? And the biggest thing is I was like, I would regret that I've never done an Olympics. Yeah. But the Olympics are so coveted. We all know that, you know, they, and once you get in with the Olympics, it's hard to get in there. And I thought, well, post reporter, I've seen what's going on there. I'm not getting those jobs. So I thought it's time for a woman's voice to call the women's game. And that's where it started. I thought it's time for a female voice to call a gold medal women's hockey game. And how do I get there? You know, and I say that with great humility because the play by play position is very difficult. We all know that. But I thought with my broadcast ability and also with my knowledge of the game, there is a space for this because no woman's doing it. So strategic in my head, I knew that society was getting there. I knew that the networks were getting there. I knew that we have a generation of play-by-play -play voices that are aging. And I don't say that disrespectfully, but, you know, we've seen, you know, Bob Cole, Jim Houston, all these legends of the game, Doc Emmerich, they're retiring. New voices got to come in. You know, so I just really put that all together. And I said to my agent, I think I want to turn to play by play. And from there, I connected with Doc Emmerich, um, who was within my network. And he told me just to get in any junior game, any rink I could start calling and record myself, just like he did when he first started. So when Doc talks, you listen. I went to Manitoba Moose games. They were kind of enough because with my connections to True North from covering the Moose for multiple years, they gave me a press box, like a box in the press box to just be in by myself. And I would go to games on Saturdays 
because that's the only time I could because I was working full time for the premiere. And I would go and I would just be the crazy lady talking to herself, recording herself in this booth. And, uh, you know, and that's what I did. And I fell in love with it. And that's when I reached out to Cassie Campbell Pascal and Sportsnet had the Canadian Women's Hockey League at the time, a four game package. I told her I wanted to do this. She said, make the call. So I called the same man, Rob Corte, who laid me off. And that's what I mean. You never burn bridges. It had nothing to do about talent. It was strictly economical. And I called him and I said, Rob, I, I want to take a shot at that. This is what I've been doing. And they gave me a brand week Kings game just to practice at. They recorded me. And the next thing you know, 2018, I'm standing beside Cassie calling the Canadian Women's Hockey League and doing that for a couple of years. And, you know, then what happens is then I get the NCAA from ESPN. I become the first woman to call the NCAA ice hockey tournament in 2019. So now I've called men's hockey. Then March 8, 2020 on International Women's Day, we do the full female broadcast for Sportsnet. I'm the woman calling. I'm the first to do play-by-play -play in the NHL here for Sportsnet. All these wonderful things. And then what happened? The pandemic. And then I didn't call for over a year. And I really thought I was done. So that's when my relationship with the Manitoba Junior Hockey League kicked in. Reached out to Kevin Surratt, and they let me go out and call games, like their showcase weekend, and I was online. And again, you know, I, I think of all the people, like out in Steinbach, you know, just going out there and, and, you know, calling online. That's what I had to do to get reps. And then, you know, it worked out. NCAA tournament came around again. They called me up ESPN. They said they're having it this year because 2020 it was canceled. And 2021, I went and called in North Dakota. And, you know, UMD, they, they went to five overtimes. And it really let the Twitter world abuzz. And the next thing you know, I'm, uh, I'm back talking to ESPN because they've got the NHL rights. And I'm telling Mark Gross, the head of the network, that, uh, you know, I'll, I'll come be your ringside reporter. But I want a hybrid position and I want to call play-by-play. And that is how I got here. And uh, they took a swing. And I give ESPN full credit because this has not been easy. Um, I am developing in front of a national audience. I've never had an opportunity not to develop in front of a national audience. I will tell you guys that this year, the last couple months, besides losing my dad a couple of years ago, this has been the hardest mental challenge I've ever had. The, the voices on social media, the things that have been said, hockey is not for everyone by any means. And we have a long way to go. Um, you know, I've had told, I've had people tell me to shoot myself, you know, like I've, I've had the sexist comments that I've heard. I've had to turn off all my notifications. Um, you know, but what I hang on to is the note with a picture attached to it in my DMs of someone of a, a father saying, this is my little girl watching you, seeing herself. And you can see it in her face. I've, I've had so many messages, a 73 year old colonel in the army from Brandon sending me a note saying, in all my 73 years, I have never heard a female call this game, and now I have. So I have to remember that's the why. But it just, you know, this has not been easy, and it hasn't been glamorous. And, uh, you know, but I'm willing to take the bullets because somebody's got to. And, you know, and, and it's going to happen. And, and I have tons of women who reach out to me who are coming up behind me. And, and they know they can do play-by-play. -play. I didn't know that. Even as a, as in, when I was in the broadcast world, I didn't know that because no females were doing it. And now not only myself, but Kate Scott's calling the Philadelphia 76ers. We've seen Beth Mullins call the NFL. We've seen Doris Burke call the NBA. I mean, we're coming. And, you know, I, I, that's why I go back to ESPN. Because, you know, they gave me a full-time swing at this. I've called 12 games this year. I call once a week. 
That's huge. Think about that. I didn't call for a full year and now I get to call weekly and they are making me better. And I work to get better every time. And I know something's going to happen every game. I'm going to make a mistake that I'm going to learn from, which is going to make me better, which is going to create more confidence in me. This is going to take a couple of years. And the nice thing is, is that I have Mike McQuaid standing behind me from ESPN saying, we got you and we are committed to this. And so I'm just going to keep pushing, but it, um, it happens in a, an easy place. And, uh, you know, and, and kudos to Sportsnet as well, because they, they give me games up here in Canada and I have the privilege of calling my hometown team in the Winnipeg Jets. Like, how amazing is that? So, um, you know, no sob story here, but it's just, it's been a battle. It, it's not something that's come easy. So when people say to me, she just got this because she's female, you know, I won't swear here, but there's something I'd really like to say back to them. So, uh, and I'll leave it at that. But uh, yeah, so it's pretty much been the road to, uh, to, to do this. Yeah, we'll send those people a wake up T-shirt, Hexy, just, <laughs> just to keep just to keep the language a little more yeah. PG. Yeah. Uh, obviously, a lot to unpack there, uh, and you know, we feel your pain. Uh, you shouldn't have to go through that. Hexy, obviously, but anyone who knows you knows that you have drive. Uh, we've had a lot of great conversations over the years. One particular sticks out in Pittsburgh. Um, where does that drive come from? And how much has it helped you in dealing with some of this stuff that you've had to deal with over the last year? Yeah, I, you know, that's interesting because I, I truly go back to being a hex doll. I, and that's that's just my family. I mean, you don't tell us what we can or cannot do. We do not count us out. We have tenacity. We have competitive drive. We want to, I don't want to just be a play-by-play. -play. I want to be the best. I want to call Stanley Cup. I want to be in the Hall of Fame. There is no, whether any of that happens, I don't know. But that is how I have been institutionally built genetically. And the other side of that comes from my mom. The fact that I had this mother who immigrated from England when she was eight, who the only way to describe her is full of grace. The way that she handles people, the way that her temper never loses. You know, it's so the polar opposite of what my dad was. And, you know, she has really put into me just basically getting to watch her and be raised by her, even though she would say she lived a simple life. She was always that person that no one didn't like, but she would also tell you where to go very quickly in a very nice way. And so when you have those two sides of you raising you, but it, it really just comes from how my parents raised us is that, you know, do your job and be nice. That's it. And, you know, hard work, outwork talent, if talent doesn't work, you know, and that's where it comes from. I've never been the most gifted in anything I've ever done, but it's been the work ethic that's going to get me there and the drive. And there's just, there's no stopping it until you hit the mark. And that's it. I'm interested in the dynamic that exists between you and your cousin Ron. Now, I don't <laughs> want you to—I don't want you to be giving away any trade secrets, and I don't need you to give me too much of how that goes. But you've got this relative that you're close with that is a power broker and one of the most important people inside the league. Um, sometimes, well, clearly that can have its benefits, but sometimes you're almost a little too close to power and being that you're in front of a microphone all the time, there's certain things that maybe at times you cannot say that kind of, you know, boxes you in. So I, I, I want you to give me an idea without giving away trade secrets of how you navigate a relationship with a family member who is one of the most important people in the league that you cover. 
Ron and I, you know, we have a, you know, I always say, you know, people think he's my uncle all the time because there's a big age gap between us. You know, he's old. I'm not. Uh, that's <laughs> uh, because his dad's the eldest of the five brothers and my dad was the baby. So I think my dad was only seven when Ron was born or 12 or something like that. So uh, Ron and I didn't grow up together, but I was his flower girl. And for some reason, when I was five, I was his and Di's flower girl. And he used to always pick on me and always tease me. And whenever I would see him, and, you know, so there was always something about Ronnie, you know, we'd come in to see the games and he always treated me just, you know, like, like a little sister almost when he would see me. And, and that's how it was. And, um, you know, then we both get into this hockey world after he retired and we're both doing this. And, you know, one of the things, Sean, is that I was, you know, I had been filling in for TSN and I had been up for some jobs at Hockey Night and, it, and I had auditioned for another one and, and I had heard, you know, and I you know, I've been in Winnipeg now for like six years. And I just was really at the point where I felt like I had done everything I could in Winnipeg. And, and I just, you know, it was the year before the Jets returned. And, and I just said to him, I said, I didn't get the job at Hockey Night. You know, and I said, I just don't know if this is for me. And I'll never forget what Ron said to me. And he said, it only takes one yes. And that kept me going. And, and that just to me kind of solidifies my relationship with Ron. And he's had moments in his career without giving away too much that, you know, obviously... You know, I remember being in L.A. when they won their first cap, and it was amazing. You know, he didn't win a cup as a player, but here he was as the AGM, really helped build that team, you know, and comes in and, and wins it. And I, I couldn't have been happier for him. But then goes to Philly and, and the fallout there and, and being let go. And so we've both been through some experiences where, you know, we've both been let go. We both know this industry. We both know this hockey world cannot be clear, but we also build each other up when we need to. So I think we've been able to bond through that. And, you know, one of the things I, when you ask about where does the drive come from, you know, it's the same thing. And that's what I mean about being a Hextel with Ron. You know, Ron, after the Philadelphia issue uh, and getting let go there, whether you thought it was correct or not, which I did not, and I will clearly state that, um, you know, he had other opportunities to get back in the game as an AGM. And he said, no, I'm a general manager. And he waited. And that's not easy to do. It's not easy when you have things knocking on your door to get back in this world. And he waited. And now the opportunity comes in Pittsburgh of all places, which I never. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and, and it's hard because people always think being a hex doll helped me in my world. And, you know, listen, I'm not going to get it twisted. It's helped me get through the door sometimes, but it's also hurt me. I have a divisive last name in our world. And it doesn't always help me. In Manitoba, it's a beloved name by most. But you go to other places and it's not. Very, we all know what just happened with Bob Clark and his comments about my cousin. I've been at family functions with Bob Clark. That crap cuts deep. And, you know, and I've had to hold my tongue and I will continue to hold my tongue because I'd like to call the game in Philadelphia one day. But there's so much going on behind that. And, and I just look at it and I think about Ron and, you know, and I don't think it's fair. I think about Nolan Patrick. I don't think it's fair. Who's a great kid who's had head you know, concussions after concussions, and it's not his fault. But that's what I mean. It's it's really hard. I mean, I almost got in a couple of fistfights when I was growing up because people would just bash Ron. And it's just hard because the one thing that we were raised with is blood is thicker than water. And that's what I really believe in. It's what my sister believes in. It's what my family believes in. So it hasn't always been roses. But, you know, the dynamic with Ron is that I just think that we've both watched each other. And, you know, when I called my first play-by-play -play game, I, you know, one of the first texts I got was from Ronnie just saying, I'm so proud of you, kid. And I'm just so proud of him. So that's kind of how, how that works. 
Leah, I know you talked about some of the challenges. What have been some of the highlights from this year specifically? I know that uh, it's something that we often say in our business, you got to celebrate some of the small victories. And some of these are not just small victories. They're uh, massive victories and blazing of trails and all of those great things. Uh, what are some of the things that have stood out so far? Well, I think that one right there, Kenny, just what you said, is that I have an opportunity right now and, and the privilege of pressure to lead the way in a space that women traditionally haven't occupied. And I take great pride in that and I will continue to push for that. And I think that is a super highlight for me. It's something that I've worked very hard to get this opportunity to do and I'm going to keep doing it. The other thing I love is the fact that you know, I'm getting to go to all these different ranks in all these different cities. I was just in Seattle for the first time at Climate Pledge Arena. It's a beautiful facility. The people you meet, uh, hockey has some of the best people that you can ever meet. Um, you know, and, and listen, like I started at CKX and Brandon and I'm working for ESPN. Like, come on. Like, like you know, and you don't take to your point, Kenny, you don't. Like just even saying that right there, like I, I don't think about that because you get so involved in the world and how much work it is and, and just, you know, the travel and yada, yada, yada. And, you know, wow, like that's that's a long way in 18 years. And uh, so so that's that's been the sensational part of it. And, you know, and I just think with ESPN, just watching us as a team get better. I mean, this is a, this is a network that, yes, it is ESPN, but hasn't done hockey for you know since back in 2004. I believe it's been a long time. And, you know, their people are learning and, and we're all progressing together. And uh, it's been great to see and, and everybody's been lovely. I mean, I just got to work with Linda Cohn, who's one of the first women I remember ever seeing on the television. And she was ringside in my game I did in Seattle, standing alongside Dominic Moore. I'm calling games, you know, with people who are, you know, legendary in the game and Ray Ferraro, et cetera. And, and, uh, and it's just been, and, you know, it's been fabulous. So, uh, so that's been a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, the travel, I'm starting to get used to it. It's not <laughs> easy traveling to Winnipeg. There's a lot of connections. I'm not on that comfy charter like, you know, some other people get to be. And I, I kind of understand why that's a great gig now. Um, but uh, I'm getting used to it. And I've seen a lot of airports and uh, getting pretty good at finding my way around them. Hexy, we're going to have to let you go. This has been phenomenal. I wanted two quick hit questions before you go, though. The one, though, you listed off your Grandpa Brian's stats really, really well. The one thing that you didn't mention is he remains the only Manitoban to ever lead the NHL in scoring, uh, oh. which I think is phenomenal. Um, That's so, so, so quick, quick question. Uh, is he the best player that Manitoba has ever produced? Of course. There you go. Done. And then the second question, second quick hitter. Have you ever witnessed live a more impressive athletic feat than Ken Weeb hitting two aces in one golf round? No. Like, and, and I'm not even lying there. I mean, and the best part is really quickly here because I know you guys got to go. So he hits the first one. Kevin O and I were too, Kevin O'Shaughnessy and I were too busy chatting because we hadn't seen each other forever. So we missed it. So we didn't get to see it go in. And we're like, oh my God, we missed it. <laughs> And he was 16th, and, and Kenny could I'd never golfed the course before. So Kenny goes, Hexy, this is what you want to do. You just want to go, you want to aim to this side of the green, it'll funnel down into the hole. So he steps up, what does he do? He does exactly what he just told me to do, and it went in. And that one I saw, we lost our minds. And I mean, I don't think I'll ever see that again in my life. So I still think it's the greatest feat by Aces there to uh, to get those two in. And, and it couldn't have been a better foursome, in my little opinion, of the people that we were with that day because Tother was there with us as well. 
That's great stuff. Uh, Leah, it's been a joy to talk with you. We loved it when you joined us uh, the last time for our post game. Uh, and you've just been so awesome. Uh, so you bring so much energy to this. And I got to say, you talked about kind of you taking the shots. Uh, and I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, and we've had conversations behind the scenes of what you're going through. Uh, I, I just think you're so strong for what you're going through. Uh, the comment that you made, uh, and you made a ton of comments in this interview that just have resonated with me, but I've got two daughters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love the idea of you being out there saying that someone's got to hate, take the hits and I'm willing to do that. Um, I just think that is so noble. Uh, and I'm so appreciative that women like you are out there doing that and pr- hopefully making the path a lot easier for, for women, uh, going forward and being a father of two daughters. It means the world to me. Well, thank you for saying that. And thank you guys for having me. Um, I have some Jets games coming up in February, which I'm really excited about for, uh, for Sportsnet. I'm, I'm calling, um, on the 14th and 16th, both against Minnesota. So those will be great games as we know. So maybe I can join you guys post game if, uh, if you're willing to have me on again. So awesome. you are welcome anytime time you come thank you so much right. Leah. it was thank great catching up with you have a good thank day you. all right that was great and we're gonna bring straight in away here Corey hirsch to the program uh Corey, uh, uh, one of our Sportsnet announcers out in Vancouver, makes sense. We're, so, Corey, we're not going to really dig into the Canucks here uh, today because we're more interested in you. Uh, and uh, I guess I want to start with your playing career. Uh, and one of the things that stands out to me, the first time I met you, and maybe this is just because, you know, when you're when you're meeting NHL goaltenders, you're usually looking way up. They're usually really, really tall guys. You're, you're about 5'10", are you not? Uh, yeah, I'm about 5'10". Can you guys hear me? Uh, we, we can good? hear you. Good. Sure, sure, yeah. Yeah. This is We're like, great. so I'm like, <laughs> trying to set this up. It's like, which way do I go? What, what do I do? I, I'm like <laughs> way good. taller than you guys right now. So it's like, all right, we got it. We got it. Well, okay, it, 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 it makes yeah, sense for my, it makes sense for my first question. Cause when I think about you as a goaltender uh, and, and your, your stature, I think, you know, there's guys like Archer's Urbe were in the league around the same time. And so small goaltenders were, were still a thing back in those days. Mike Vernon had a long career, but growing up, did you have to fight the stature issue Were were there, were there, Scouts that were telling you you weren't going to make it, or or what was it you had to do at that time to make it as a goaltender under six feet tall? Well, it's a little different now, right? They're like six seven. So when I was younger, you were like five ten was was okay. You get drafted, it was all right. Yeah, you were a little on the small side. It started to creep up a little bit, but um, now I'd, I'd never get drafted. So what happened was is that you didn't have any really padding on the inside of your knees, right? So the smaller goalies could get around quicker. But now they've changed the equipment. You've got inside padding on your knees. Like my generation, you couldn't go down. You just smack your knees on the ice. So now they've got inside knee pads. So you get guys that just sit on their goal line that are like six, seven. And I'd be tempted to get like a sumo wrestler or um, <laughs> like Shaq. I'd be like, Shaq, come play for a team, dude. Um, <laughs> the whole team back then was survival. You couldn't even practice hard because you were just trying not to get hit by the puck. You'd be like... Oh, Hershey's going to be tough to hit today. Oh man. Yeah. So it's so, it's so different now. Uh, when I got, did we do central scouting and we'd get, you'd get measured your height. So, you know, you had to put your, your socks on. You couldn't have your shoes on because you're measuring your height. I used to put little like shimmies under my heels. Right. <laughs> you're like, I go from like five to nine and a half to like five eleven. <laughs> 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 
Sweet. Sweet. So, yeah, that's kind of the story. And, and growing up, Mike Palmatier, man, I love the masks. I love the equipment. I loved how all the goalies were different characters. And you could be your own character. Now I find them all to be, like, just the same. Yeah, I was like, I used to be able to tell each goalie by what they looked like <laughs> and who they were. Now I'm like, I don't know. That I was curious about what attracted you to the position, but you pretty much answered that, Hershey. But what was your quirk? We always hear about all goalies used to have one. What was your what? What was the thing that made you that goalie in quotation marks? You read my story, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You can ask me what we do that. Shit. Um, are we allowed to swear on the show? Like, how are we? Can I? Do I gotta, sorry. So you know what? You just be you. You be I'm you, still, Corey, and we'll figure it out from there. Don't be business like f bombs or anything like that. <laughs> uh, what did I do? I mean, I would always had to put everything on my left hand side first, like my pads and all that. But I'll tell you a story. So I'm my second NHL game. We're playing in LA. Uh, playing against Wayne Gretzky, you know, I'm like, so first period goes well. Second period, I get scored on three times, like boom, 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 and the period ends, and I'm like, this is my second NHL game. Like, I have, I got, you know, uh, I got this thing where I used to just take all of all my equipment, and then I would put it back on like a restart, right? So, you know, I'm I'm stressed out. I just got scored. This is my, this is my, you know, this is my second NHL game. I took up all my gear, all my stuff. And I went and got in the shower <laughs> and like rinsed off. And all these guys, like, they're like, all these guys that are like 20 years old, like, what the hell is this guy doing? And it was just me. So then I went and I put my equipment back on. Like, you got 15 minutes, right? So I put all my equipment back on. I go out and then I don't get scored on the third period. And we win. I get my first NHL win. So, um, you know, they went from looking at me like, I don't give a damn what he does. He plays well because goalies are supposed to be weird. So they just laugh at you. Um, but I'll tell you what, never he's probably still in therapy, right? He's like, probably like seeing therapists right and he's like, he sweats at night, he has night terrors because he didn't score on me, right? I mean, that's yeah. just the way it is, Brad. Sorry about your luck. Yeah. Yeah. But when he, when he sees you, you probably can't make eye contact to this day. I, I'm, I feel for him. I feel for the guy. No, I've um, got a 500 uh, foot restraining order. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I was hiding in his bushes for a while. Things got a little weird, but hey, we, we um, I want to build off that first answer that you gave because you brought up something. I, I love having this debate about how goalies back in the day, to your point, like Patrick Waugh's mask when he was with the Canadians, that was his mask, yeah. that was his identity. And I think now we cover the Jets, and Connor Hellebuck is rolling through like two or three different designs a year. And, and, and I, I wonder, I'd like your opinion on if something is lost with goaltenders. I mean, it's, it's interesting. And we, I take a look at uh, Carey Price's mask last year. It came out and there's all these reveals and it's a thing of beauty and it gets people excited, but is something lost, not creating that, you know, marked identity of a goaltender like we used to have in the eighties and nineties and maybe two thousands. Well, I don't know what the hell you guys are talking about. <laughs> I really don't. I, mean, I ski. I wear this down the mountain. I get in my car. I'm like, you know, there's, there's like, can you hear me? Actually, <laughs> yeah, we're gonna do the. This is how I, I, I get into bed. I just, you know, I sleep like this, so it's, it's all good. It's, uh, I never get a. Well, anyways, okay. Um, that's the mask I wore actually with the Canucks, and it was um, one of the. Uh, yeah, it's actually Greg Harrison. So, I mean, he was pretty cool gorgeous. So, anyways, yeah. gorgeous. So, um, yeah, they're they're just like my psycho house is in the Hall of Fame, right? So that's pretty cool. And all the designs are, 
I don't think anybody can replicate what went on because it was more simple. Like the designs were, were really cool. Now they've got so much crap going on. They've got, you know, a guitarist guy over here and they've got a kid over here and they've got, right. So it's like, it's almost too busy now and I can't tell what they are, but those kind of masks, like, you know, Mike Palmatier, Felix Pop and uh, Patrick Waugh, like you knew, you know, what it was. You guys ever see Gary Bromley's mask? The one that's the skull. Yeah. It's so incredible. You got to look it up. Uh, and then I met him and I'm thinking, you know, he's got to be a little bit dark. And I met him at a game and he's like the nicest little old man you've ever met. Oh, really? You know, he had the coolest <laughs> mask in history. Nice. Often we, uh, we hear, you know, so many goalies become analysts, Corey, but uh, what attracted you to that? And how did you, you know, what do you enjoy most about uh, being able to talk about the game that you love? Money. <laughs> yeah, paid. No, okay. uh, you know what? As a goalie, I think why by uh, catchers and goalies are are broadcasters because when you're standing in the net, I can see the whole game. The whole game's in front of me, right? So I can see what's going on. When I'm sitting on the bench, I got the best seat in the house. So you know, with your forward, you're skating. You're like you don't have anything. I mean, it's like you're getting hit. So, but as a goalie, you see everything and you pick up everything so i think that's why we're all broadcasters in media and i don't know if you guys notice this i like attention <laughs> right? look at me i didn't get enough attention as a kid right so it's yeah that's probably the reasons for it i you know i love chasing around 21 year old bazillionaires it's just so much fun <laughs> um i don't know how to broach this question without kind of i, I don't want to ignore the, the bomb that I thought was your Players Tribune article where you talked about your, your mental health struggles yeah. throughout your career. That when, I, when I saw that, that, to me, that's one of the most impactful pieces of journalism, sports journalism that I've read in, in years. Um, but I, I, I want to take... You can ask me anything, man. Hey, seriously. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, so nothing I, 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 I just, you said that I like attention, right? So here's this guy who's got these, you know, that your mental health issues that you had and you struggled with throughout your career under the white hot spotlight and then you leave that and you you go into broadcasting which is you know literally the lights turn on and you got to hit your spots and you got to go what do you think it is about your personality that while you had the struggles that you've had it's st you still had the desire and the push to put yourself in places of extreme discomfort yeah um you know i i live my life believing that there's healing and helping others so there's a little bit in it for me too right uh, I met a hockey player that was kind of the same. He's younger than me, so I'll tell you a little bit of the story. I'm in Arizona, and I go see He's sitting in the stands watching the Coyotes game. He's an NHL player for another team. I'm like, what are you doing here? He's like, oh, I'm in rehab. I'm like, what, your knee or something? He's like, no, I'm, I'm in rehab. So I figure, you know what, he's got to be bored in rehab. I said, can you come out and have a coffee? I'm like, he's like, yeah. So I take him to Starbucks. And I hadn't really told anybody my stuff, but I figured, yeah, he's probably got mental health issues too, right? So I spill out my story to him and he looks at me and goes, that's exactly what happened to me. And I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, my mom had to resuscitate me twice from overdoses. And I was like, I was blown away. I was like, you gotta be kidding me. I'm not gonna say who this guy's name is. So it was after that, I was like, I didn't realize how much my story was as dangerous as it is, right? How dangerous mental health can be. I mean, I got to my point, but it wasn't like someone was resuscitating me. So after that, I was like, 
got to get my story out there. So I, I met two ladies here in Vancouver, that Lana Quinn and Catherine McCauley, that set it up with the Players Tribune. I did an interview. Um, it's ghostwriter, by the way. I can't write like that. I write at a grade three level, right? So, <laughs> like, when he sent it back to me, I was like, like, were you there? Like, were you there sitting beside me the whole time? It was so good. Um, so after that point, it was like, I need to get as much of this awareness out there as possible. And as a player, I always wanted to be a broadcaster. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed TV. I enjoyed radio. Um, and then it just kind of fell all together. Uh, and it's so weird how everything just kind of happens and it's boom. And I believe when you help people, you almost get it back tenfold. It's so, you know, like I've had way more opportunity and stuff since I started helping people. Uh, it's actually quite, quite incredible. More, everything just more comes to you. And I, I think there's karma in that. I really do. Corey, uh, the Jets held their hockey talks uh, on Tuesday. I had a great uh, tribute to Rick Rippon again. I know the Canucks did the same, something similar last week. Uh, you know, great to see Wes there. Uh, with Kevin BX. I mean, what's it like for you to see how that has grown and specifically how the two organizations have kind of taken these strides on those fronts? And do you believe that hockey's in a better place when it comes to people being more open when it comes to the sharing of some of those uh, mental struggles? Yeah. I think mental health that, struggles. Yeah. Yeah. Those, uh, I think that, I think there's a, that's a loaded question because I think it is better. I think the programs are better. Uh, Dr. Shaw with the NHL is incredible. The NHL has a, a social worker or NHL alumni has a social worker. Uh, but, you know, there's still some blocks. Um, you know, there's still some other things that I, I won't say on here. But as far as it is better, however, it's still difficult to get players to come forward. Really difficult. The numbers are one in five. So, on every player, on every team that has 20 players, there's four guys struggling statistically. And mental health doesn't discriminate. It doesn't care if you're a lawyer, doctor, NHL player. Like, it doesn't care, right? So there's probably four guys on each NHL team struggling. Now, you've got guys behind you that want to take your job. You've got a coach that has pressure. He's going to get fired. you got a GM that spent millions. Uh, so guys, are they were not really willing to come forward because they feel they're going to be labeled as kind of damaged goods and a guy that that's kind of like, well, you can't trust him. He's got mental health issues. And they were afraid of getting flushed. So I will say this though, Michael Phelps, 23 gold medals, um, you know, uh, Clara Hughes, gold medals, Clint Malarchuk, Sheldon Kennedy, all the great things that they've done. Michael Phelps suffers with depression. Don't tell me he's weak. Don't tell me he can't help your team. Every NHL team that wins the Stanley cup, has probably three or four guys that are struggling. So, you know, but you're labeled as weak and that you can't help them, which is a lot of crap. I was a better goalie after I got help. When I wasn't getting help, I, I wasn't, I, like, you can see my stats fall off a cliff. But after I got help, it was like I was damaged good. So, you know, you get flushed down the, you get flushed and sent to the minors or whatever. And it's ridiculous because you've got a pretty good player that's not healthy. Well, when he goes to get healthy, think of how good he's going to be. But yeah. the other one's like, whoa, I don't, I, there's a stigma. Well, if he's mentally, yeah, it's like, oh, hey, you got four players in your team are struggling. So does Tampa, and they just won the Stanley Cup. So, nah, it's a lot of crap. You know, in listening to you and you were talking about the karma and that you're feeling of sharing and putting that out there, helping people, you know, there's got to be something, and I go back to that Players' Tribune article where you shared extremely vulnerable details i was i was shocked when i read that article i was shocked that you'd gone through that and 
but I, I assume there's got to be something therapeutic about sharing that story. But oh, yeah. Beforehand, there, there must have been something scary about opening up and being that vulnerable as well. So I was, I, I've always been interested in your process of, you know, this, the fear that you may have felt going through the process, going, have, you know, w when that, w when that article dropped, how people reacted and, you know, the, the feedback that you got afterwards, take me through that whole thing about how, you know, tense it may have yeah. been when you were releasing that and what came back to you afterwards. Yeah. So, well, first things first, I thought I was getting the actor, Sean Reynolds. So this is, you know, this is like something I didn't expect. Uh, no, it's all good. You're, you're talking um, about my cousin Ryan. That's what you're thinking. I was, cousin oh, Ryan. Yeah, Ryan. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, I was terrified. I, I really was. I was like, I'm never going to work again. But I was like, after I heard that story, you got resuscitated two times. I'm like, I got to get my story out there because maybe it'll help somebody. Um, and then uh, I was terrified to, to get it out there. It, it really was, but I was like, what the hell? I got nothing to lose now. You know, like I'm, I'm in a place where mental health was coming forward and I was in a better place. And um, I think that article just hit at the right time when people were ready to go. I'm tired of having mental health issues and having to hide them. And up to that point, I mean, I was still hiding them, right? I was still hiding everything. And, and I was like, ah, screw it. You know what? I'm just going to do this and whatever happens, happens. But when the article came out, it had like 2 million hits in the first hour. I mean, mm -hmm. you've got Derek Jeter, Shaq, you've got LeBron, all these people that have had articles in the Players' Tribune. And mine hit the hardest than anybody's like, yeah. like an hour. I was like, what the hell? But it showed me that mental health needs to be first and people are tired of struggling they're tired of hiding uh, and i never got one bad comment the love and support i've gotten from that um you should never be afraid to come forward with your mouth and if somebody shame you for doing it, guess what thank you people go find somebody else um so you know that's it's everybody else i think is um if you don't understand mental health, well, that's fine. But like I said, if you go talk to somebody and they don't understand and they shame you and they judge you, nah, they ain't your people. Cause you know what? There are a lot of people out there that are your people. For sure. Corey. I mean, what's, you know, you talked about the rewards coming back tenfold. I mean, Leah gave an example after going through some hard times about how you get that email from the dad of a, of a young girl. I mean, can you share any of the, some of those responses yeah, uh, that you had that really resonated? I know all of them matter to you, but what are some of them yeah. that ma resonated the most? I have to take it sometimes because it's pretty mean. Like now it's after bell. Let's talk. I need like, I got to take a little break because you kind of, you can wear that. Um, you know, I've, I've had people, I just had a, a lady email me in December saying, Hey, I'm just trying to hang on until January. If I can get therapy, great. If I can't, I don't know what's going to happen. Right. And I'm like, what do you do with that? So you, you try and talk to them and connect with them. I'm not qualified to like deal with, you know, a diagnosis or anything, but you try and give them hope. You try and keep encouraging them. Uh, I'll get emails from dads that are like, Hey, can you talk to my son? Can you talk to my daughter? Can you talk to, and it's overwhelming. And I, and, and also I, I can't talk to everybody. Right. So it's hard to um, pick and choose, but all the time man, our mental health system, people, I'm in the middle of it. And I struggle with where to go and how to find it. And um, 
you know, therapists are overwhelmed right now. So I can't imagine having a child right now and you don't even know where to go. And that needs to change. So like with our, our that's what we're doing with this blindsided uh, podcast that we go on with the Players' Tribune. We're trying to create change. And through professional athletes, because people look at them like elite athletes, like we just had Daryl Sedora on yesterday. Uh, we got Kurt Warner, Bubba coming up, Kevin Love. What we're trying to do is interview get their stories their stories are just like mine where they kind of you know they're down and out and then they climb through and we're trying to show people you know what you just gotta hang in there you just you gotta hang in there you gotta wait the help is out there but you know if you don't the the alternative is not good but there is help available you really got to work through it the first place you go to is your doctor that's the first place you go to if you're struggling uh and tell them they've seen it all so uh, I'm glad you asked that question, but yeah, it's, um, we're trying to change it and we're probably, it's good that it is where it is, but we're probably 50 years behind. Like, I don't know what your parents were like, but my, my parents, my dad was like, I go for a walk, you know, I have the greatest dad in the world, but it's like, ah, you know what? Oh, you're having repetitive thoughts. You're seeing things. Oh, go for a walk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, you got to what but that that was they didn't know any better right my dad did they, they weren't taught anything and i know this is a long-winded rant here but i'm pissed off at our, our high school system our our school system whatever it is whether it's the government or not if i'd have been told what ocd was taught what depression is anxiety all that stuff when i got sick i didn't know where okay i gotta go see a therapist i gotta do this i gotta do that but instead i ended up hiding for three years and almost killed myself well, what the hell? Why didn't you teach me that stuff? Like, why are, Why didn't you educate my, my kids, my parents? It's so easy. But it's like, I'll go into schools and parents will pull their kids out of my, my talks because they're like, oh, if he talks about suicide, you know, my kids might get, you know, if I talk about suicide, I might save your kid from, from taking their own life. Talking about suicide does not create more suicide. The statistics are there for it. And we need to educate our kids. And again, um, I wouldn't know to go to a therapist that next time, but instead I don't know what to do. You know, I want things to stop. I didn't want to die guys. Like I didn't, I didn't want to die that day, but I was like, I, I didn't know what else to do. I didn't, I didn't know how to make it stop. So, you know, when I ended up in that position, when, if I was educated and taught about it, I didn't ever ended up in that position. I would have gotten help, gotten help. And it's just, it's ridiculous to me. Thank you. That's my rant. I'm going to drop the mic and see you guys later. No. Well, uh, it's like uh, the conversation I, a little bit, but hey, that's my uh, that's my rant. No, I, I like where the conversation is at right now. It's one of the reasons we wanted to talk, and I'm glad you brought up the Blindsided po- podcast, which is uh, which is going through the Players' Tribune. Um, I, I wanted to talk about that. You n- named some of the big names: Kevin Love, Bubba Watson, Paul Bissonnette, people that you're talking with. You. Like you said, when your article dropped and you get that massive reaction that you get, clearly you've reached people. You struck a tone. Now you've got a podcast that is like focused on showing that there's these major athletes that people love and admire who are going through these issues as well. And they're comfortable to come out and talk with it and talk to you about this. And I would think that your initial article with the Players' Tribune 
had a massive effect and kind of laid the groundwork for that. What kind of pride do you take in the change in the conversation that we can have these and these people will come on a podcast and talk about this where not that long ago, to your point, especially in the athletic world, this is something you hid as your deepest, darkest secret. Yeah, you know, I look at my article hit at the right time. I look at it that way, but there were many before me, right? There was Clint Malarchuk. There was, uh, you know, like Michael Landsberg. There was uh, Theo Fleury. There's been a few other people. I think mine hit at the right time. And one of the people that I admire the most, that's a friend of mine, is Sheldon Kennedy. I mean, it was like the mid-90s when he came out with his sexual abuse story. Like, do you know how brave that is? Like, to be able to put a light on that back in the 90s? Um, so, you know, he's my friend, but also... It was like, I look up to him. He's, he's, he's my hero. I mean, he just, he really is. But I think my article hit at the right time. So people, um, other players felt like after they saw what happened to me, um, you know, they felt safe to, to move forward. But there was people before me I, I have to give a, a lot of credit to. And, and uh, just back to the podcast, that's, that's really what we're trying to do. So what I do it is I do it with uh, a doctor, psychiatrist, doctor. Like, she's incredible. Uh, her name's Dr. Diane McIntosh. And so in the podcast, we have the best of, you know, we're able to, because I'm not qualified to like dig out mental health stories or talk to people about mental health stories. She is. And she's so incredible and empathetic. And uh, I, I talk the hockey side and the sports side. And it's amazing how football, baseball, whatever sport it is, it's kind of like we're connected and it's all kind of the same. But uh, the way Diane just kind of constructs the universe, and it's not a, hey, I got you or expose you. It's to shed a light on mental health, to help people uh, as much as we can, and to get people's stories out. Like, people didn't really know Paul Bizonet. I know Biz. Biz is one of the best people I know. If I called him tomorrow and he was in Phoenix and I said, hey, I'm moving, I need a truck, he'd drive up and he'd probably help me move, right? That's that's Biz. But he gets, you know, he's got a character, he's got a persona, but well, I wanted to get his story out there so that people saw the real side of him and that they go, hey, oh, wow, he went through some struggles too. You know what? And there's nothing wrong with going and getting help. Um, so that's kind of the, the gist of the podcast. What are some of the challenges to make people feel comfortable in those kinds of settings, Corey, with the topic that, yes, it's more, you know, not acceptable, but people feel more comfortable. But how do you get people to be comfortable in sharing and going to get the help that they need? Yeah. Usually I do it topless. I used to do it. Everybody's like, you know what? That is comfort. Uh, No, you know what? They know that they're coming on. They know that they're already coming on to tell their stuff. But what I can do is is that I have the ability to relate to them through sport and through mental health. So we just, you know, we just start talking. And then, you know, like I said, Diane's amazing. Like she's been doing that and for you know probably seen thousands of people so she knows how to talk to people how to draw a story i can relate to them and and make it feel like it's a safe place for them to tell their stuff uh you know like kevin love and i we could hang out every day (laughs) it was and he's a basketball player like we're like we had the same story it was so cool how i can relate to all of them um you know and uh, baba i'm gonna get lessons from him golf but no i'm not he's not giving lessons i wish he was i should have asked him he's a lefty too but no you know what that's just it's the dynamic of diane and it's the dynamic of having the professional athlete um and it's a safe space right we tell them before they come on look if there's a question you don't want answered or you don't want in there just let us know we'll pull it out 
You you mentioned a safe space. I think that's an important uh, I think that's an important point that you make because some people have to go do this, and I would include you in this with that first article in the Players Tribune you, into a space that's not so safe. And I I think about an athlete like Naomi Osaka and how she was kind of raked over the coals uh, for what she went through. You know, saying that maybe I need to step away from this. You know, at the very top of her game, best in the world. I have, you know, before you hopped on, I was talking about my two daughters that I have. When that happened, I looked, uh, I showed my daughters what she was doing and said, this is extreme strength. This is someone doing something that for years people wouldn't have done before this. And this is important. And I want my daughters to take a lesson from that, that if they ever feel that way, that it's okay to talk about that. When you see, when you see something like that with her, where do you think we're at in society when it comes to accepting people talking about these kind of issues and listening to people talk about these issues? Here's the problem. If people think you have money, they're like, the hell you have a problem for You got $5 million. You got a beautiful house. You got a beautiful wife. But what are you talking about? What do you mean you're depressed? What do you mean you got anxiety? We shame people for having money and struggling or being a celebrity and struggling. Well, guess what? Mental health doesn't discriminate. Doctor, lawyer, professional athlete. It doesn't discriminate if you have $100 million. Does cancer discriminate? Does diabetes? No, no. But we'll shame people because, you know, they're professional athletes. So for her to do that um, is incredible. And we put incredible pressure on people. Um Who's the gal, uh, the gymnast? Simone Biles. Biles, yeah. Biles, yeah. I mean, did you see some of the stuff? Like, I, I listened to some, like, shows, and I'm like, they just butchered her for leaving, for, you know, being a, a, a bad teammate. And, like, are you kidding me? You know, this person is clearly struggling. Like, what do you want her to go end up doing the gymnastics and, you know, winning a gold, but end up, you know, killing herself somewhere? Yeah, that's really cool. That'll really help. Uh, we can't, we got to stop shaming people because they have money. I had a silver medal in the Olympics. I had a Stanley Cup that I drank out of. Well, I can't tell you, but that was a roster player. I got to drink out of the cup. Very tinny, by the way, guys. <laughs> and there's, you know, people are pouring stuff in there. Everybody's drinking. I There's probably hepatitis in there, too. But I don't even want to talk about it. Ah, <laughs> it's I just, I went too far there. So, anyways. Um, but, yeah, so, and you couldn't tell me how great my life was. My, my brain was, like, broken. So if you told me how great my life, it would just make me feel crappier. It would have buried me even further because I'd be like, you know what? You're right. Like, what am I? I am a crappy person for feeling this way. So you can't point out how great someone's life is because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much money they have. Again, it doesn't matter how great Sean's hair is compared to yours and mine. (laughs) Is that unfair? That's so unfair. It really is. Hey, Ken, it's like... Yeah, <laughs> it's a light. It's a lifestyle. Corey, one quick one. I mean, there's no easy transition, but uh, you know, pretty landmark moment in Vancouver this week. Uh, I listened to Emily Castonguay's uh, presser and was absolutely blown away by uh, you know her sharing her story, her you know drive attention to detail passion all of those things i'm just curious what stood out to you uh, about the conversation and what it means to bring a voice like that into the organization in terms of bringing some fresh air i guess i I thought it was awesome um (laughs) no that's that's just the plain and simple i mean she probably you know she's probably got all the stuff degrees and and uh, you know whatever she has i don't i don't really know her background but 
probably a very smart woman, right? Very smart, probably been involved in hockey, everything for her whole life or business and sports. All right. Well, you know what? I got a Western Hockey League education. Nothing against the Western Hockey League. I love it. It was a great experience. But I mean, if I passed high school, it was like, yeah, I passed, right? So it's like you need people in there that know what they're doing, that have gone through the business programs, that have uh, the education. And I don't understand why some teams just hire somebody because they're somebody's buddy or because they're a guy and that's how a guy. If she's smart and she's educated and she's got heart and passion and can do the job, why the hell not, right? Like, well, why not? Um, you know, as long as she doesn't get to do the color play-by-play for the radio for the Canucks, I'm good, right? I'm good. <laughs> so as long as Daniel and Henrik Sedin don't want to do the play-by-play and the color for the Canucks, hey, you know what? That's great. But no, seriously, it's, it's awesome. I, I really think it is. And it's about time. Like, I know women way smarter and way more educated and way more passionate than some of the people that I've worked with. I'm not going to say anything, but um, yeah, it's, I think it's great. I think it's monumental. Corey, how can people catch up on the blindsided podcast? You can reach it anywhere. Go to Spotify, anywhere you listen to your podcasts, um, you know, just blindsided. It'll be, uh, myself, you can go to the Players Tribune. It's on there. You can come to my site, Twitter, Corey Hirsch. My Instagram is CoreyHirsch72. Uh, yeah, anywhere you listen to your podcast, just type it in. And, and I'm telling you guys, not because it's just mine, it is so powerful uh, to listen to these people. And, and Diane is just, God, I'm blessed to have met her because uh, I don't think there's another person that could have ever do it the way she does. She's not like Dr. Phil or Dr. Oz. No offense to those guys, but um, <laughs> she just has a way of, of empathy, compassion. And these players were so thankful for them sharing us their story. And you know what, guys, you gave me a platform today. So thank you. Right. Without you guys, I mean, I don't get to do what I do too. I need you guys just as much as you need. So, well, I got to tell you, Corey, it means the world to us. I know you said something about feeling like you made it heavy. I think uh, you made it important. We, as journalists, like to make help feel like we're making a difference. And I have to say, um, I don't know that I've ever worked with anyone that I think has made more of a positive difference in the world that you have. Uh, the, what you did with your article, uh, I think uh, you like to say it happened at the right time, but I think the the vulner the shocking vulnerability of that story is really what connected with people. Uh, it was a brave thing to do. I admire the hell out of you for doing it. Uh, and you are one of the funniest guys I know in this business, which is just the which is another side of it. Like for you to go as heavy as you do and as light as you do, your range is phenomenal. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. It means a ton. We're looking forward to catching up on all the Blindside podcasts and keep doing what you're doing. Just uh, uh, you're, you're saving lives. Virtual hug, guys. You know, um, love you both, and thank you for having me on. So appreciate it. Thank Thanks you for coming, Corey. Talk to you soon. Um. Where are we at? What'd you think? Yeah, awesome stuff. I mean, uh, I've been fortunate to speak with Corey just a couple times in the past uh, at the Young Stars Tournament in Penticton, and uh, he's just a great human being. Lots of passion, lots of energy, and as you, as he's as he showed us, I mean, lots of vulnerability, and um, that's a great thing to be able to show and to try to help people. Uh, I mean, too. I mean, I, I, you know, we always try to be honest here. Uh, when I see pictures of Rick Rippon, it, it's an emotional thing. I mean, I, you know, I covered Rick when he came into the American Hockey League as a 20 year old kid, uh, saw a guy make his NHL debut, score in his debut. 
Um, saw him go through some things that were tough. Um, he came back to the moose. You know, he showed great courage at the time. And uh, that day that he signed with the Jets, I mean, him talking about coming home, all of those things, that that call, that media call was something that stuck with me. And I was in Arizona on August 15th of 2011 and I got a text message that came in and it, that's a heart. That's a, that's a tough thing. I was not friends with Rick Rippon. I was, I knew him a little bit, but seeing someone that you covered and watched him turn, you know, grow up from young man to NHL player um, and to see the circumstances, uh, you know, death by suicide to be in that kind of a tough place. Um, that's tough for me. I mean, I, like I said, I mean, Rick was a great person. He was he wanted to help people. We had Kevin Bieks that talked about it so openly and honestly. Um, on the first night of the Jets' return, uh, part of my duties with the Sun that day, um, outside of the game story, I wrote an open letter to Rick's mom, and that was something that I felt like was one of the most important things that I was able to write because for her, she had just suffered this incredible loss, and I know tons of people told told her what Rick meant to them. But for me, um, there was something really emotional about that and seeing her in the building uh, for the you know first puck drop when Jets 2.0 came, that was something that I'm glad I was able to witness. And um, I'm glad that I was able to share that at the time. And I'm so proud of what is being done, even though there's more more things that need to be done, as, as Corey so eloquently pointed out. Um, I'm glad that teams and the league itself they're trying to make it a safer place and i'm glad that players are using their platform to share um about their own personal um issues and struggles and you know the whole it's okay to not be okay i think that's that's something that i I, i'm proud to see people taking those strides and um i know that rick would be proud of the work that is being done uh, as well and it's left an incredible legacy for uh, someone who is an incredible human being one of the things I really liked about what he brought up was when he talked about his dad and his yeah. dad, you could tell in the way that he, he said his dad would be like, oh, you're having these thoughts. You can't turn your brain off. You're seeing things go for a walk. Right. Like what I took from that was that his dad wasn't a brusque man. I took from it that his dad, you could hear the caring in that story, yeah. but he just didn't know what to do with it. And I think about, you know, just in our generation, the steps that have made been made, Ken, um, I, I'm, I'm a Lactobani kid, but I, I went to elementary school in Pinwa. I was born in the Pinwa Hospital. My best friend uh, growing up in Pinwa, his name was Yuri Tam. He commits suicide. I carried his coffin uh, when I was 14 years old. I think it was 14 or 15 years old. His older brother, Rivo Tam, ended up committing suicide as well. Rivo, it turns out, was a, a university friend with Jeff Kerbison, uh, a guy that we all know from the industry. And he's written some great books about the Jets. And I just think about how we reacted back then how we didn't understand mental health and what was happening there. Uh, you know, the surprise it was because we didn't see it coming because, you know, I was friends of, you know, this is a friend of mine. I'm a pallbearer at his funeral and I had no idea. Uh, and I think that, that the majority of us didn't have an idea. Um, I just think that the steps we've taken uh, and, and the conversations that I have with my kids now about mental health and about, you know, saying, you know, I was a guy can just let, like he would talk about like, 
whenever you were struggling, you kept that inside, right? Especially in sports, like you didn't go around in sports. It's not a place where you were showing, you know, too much emotion uh, or, or vulnerability for sure. Um, so I just think that uh, we're making progress in that. And I, I just think that Corey's story resonated so much. I think he fast forwarded that progress in such an immense manner. Uh, what a good job. And I mean, if we're talking mental health, Hexi and the conversations that she brought up and the vulnerability she brought up and what she faces on social media as being a woman calling the game, good on her for having the courage to talk about that. I, I, proud of her for bringing that up on the show she's awesome good on her and then this is the last place i wanted to go here ken in our chat room you know people sharing their own stories phyllis mm -hmm. here says she lost her dad to suicide didn't know how to cope she was just a kid uh no helps 30 years ago um you know and then eric ch chipping in here the people that we love spending time with on the show uh loves coming to knr and talking about it i love the fact that we've gotten we've said this before i always let want to give the the appreciation that i have for our chat room but i'm just blown away by how supportive everyone is out in the chat room how they just just are so supportive of each other people aren't sniping at each other uh this is a safe space we've said this before we want this to be a safe space for people to come and talk and have conversations and i gotta say ken one of the things i love about this weekly show that we do is we can go in this direction it can be light it can be heavy whatever but i feel like every time you listen to someone like Corey and hexy when she was sharing her stuff those are important mo moments and it makes me proud that we host uh, a show that can have these moments uh and you do such a great great job with it our chat room does such a great job with it i just am proud of of what we did here today yeah it was a lot of fun and there too i mean I'm glad that Leah was so open um, with everything that that she's gone through. I mean, I, it's much like when we talked about with Tara last week. I mean, I, I don't think that people realize um, when they send hate in someone's way that it really impacts the individual. I mean, um, in society, everyone wants perfection. But like, guess what? People are going to be going through some challenges, whether that's in your job or in your personal life or or anything else. And um, that's the thing that really bothers me and I don't want to go on a, get on a soapbox here, but it takes extra effort to be that hurtful. And I don't know what people think that they yeah. get out of being that way. Uh, I'm not saying you got to be, uh, have a sunny disposition 24 seven, but, uh, ha having a little sympathy and empathy, I think can go a really long way. Uh, and what we know, everyone's trying to do the best that they can, whether that's with your job, with the pandemic, with everything else. Uh, I just think that, as you mentioned, I'd rather reinforce the fact that people are being incredibly supportive. And um, and that's something, too, that, you know, when you hear someone that you appreciate or enjoy, don't be afraid to let them know either. Because, um, you know, maybe that can give the same kind of person a boost. You know what I mean? Like, that's the other part of the equation. Uh, uh, it's a tough it's a tough world we live in. And. Uh, to give someone a boost, I think sometimes uh, people appreciate those things as well. So anyways, I, I didn't want to go on a, a long rant, but uh, I appreciate both uh, you know, Leah and Corey. And I'm glad that they shared their stories with with uh, with our with our viewers, our listeners, our chat room. And it's great, too. I think a lot of people who don't know Leah didn't have any idea about her story and her journey. So I hope that that is able to you know shed a little bit of a light on that uh, part of the th of the journey as well. And I'm glad that she shared a little bit of that history. And, and that's what we try to do with all of our guests. 
Oh, I'll tell you, it's just, these kind of shows make me appreciate everything. I appreciate you, Ken. Appreciate our guests. I appreciate the chat Same room. Same with you. Uh, and uh, let's uh, let's continue the conversation tonight. Big one coming for the Jets here tonight. <laughs> Huge game against Vancouver, and Jeff has it right here. Can't wait to bring the torch and pit for, pitchfork for the post game. If the Jets don't win one, it's going to be a hot crowd there. If they do, maybe we can shed some happiness. Uh, <laughs> Hashtag uh, Desperation after. Bowl. Hashtag Desperation Bowl. Like, see exactly. if I can make you laugh, laugh a four, uh, 14th <laughs> time uh, today after uh, the, all the takes that were required. Ken, the good times never stop with you, my friend. Uh, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. Thanks to Leah. Uh, thanks to Corey. That was phenomenal stuff. And we will see everyone tonight after the game.